Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. So good to see you. You too. I love doing these podcasts because we've got we get to catch up on a weekly basis and see each other, and we just don't get to do that regularly. Sometimes we get so busy, and a couple weeks go by, and we don't get to touch base. So this has been fun. It's been totally fun, and we do touch base, but it's it's all like business, right? So this is really fun. Yeah, it's been great. So what's going on with you this week? Not much. I'm tired. I feel tired this week. I feel like with work picking up and just stuff with the kids and life getting busy again. I haven't been as good about getting to bed early this week and it's starting to catch up catch up to me. So feeling a little tired. So I'm gonna to try to catch up and reverse course and get back on track with that. So what's your typical bedtime on a week when you can't don't be embarrassed. Uh <laughs> ideally and I think uh-huh. Monday night I, I hit this one because I was so tired. Maybe, or maybe it was, yeah, Monday night, right? Because I was so tired from waking up, you know, Mondays and Fridays, I wake up super early to teach a 5.30 a.m. cycle class. So I'm up at 4.20. So Monday night, I just realized I'd hit my limit and I did go to bed at nine o'clock. That's usually my goal is to, sometimes I go to bed before my kids go to bed. So nine, I'd like to get into bed at nine o'clock. Usually it's 10 o'clock. So if I can get into bed 10, I wake up about on a normal morning that I'm not teaching, I wake up about six. So if I can get to bed 10 and sleep, through till six. That's eight hours. So that's usually my goal is 10 o'clock. What about you? Um, you know, I'm not, I really try to go to sleep right around when my kids go to sleep. Um, because I feel like I turn into a pumpkin, um, (laughs) and I get really moody if I'm not in bed. So I know my body. So I generally try to get into bed before 10. Um, and I have no problem falling asleep at all. But sometimes, especially if the temperature in my bedroom is not perfect, I wake up yeah. at three in the morning and oh because you're my too gosh. hot or too cold. Too hot. Oh. Oh, it's so annoying. And usually I can get myself back to sleep. And if I can't, it's it's really tough because then my mind starts going and I think about, well, I have to get up in two hours or I have this going on and that going on. So Generally, this week, I've, I've been good about my sleep, particularly because I'm heading right. out to Florida on Saturday, early, early Saturday morning and racing Sunday morning, and I wanted to get some sleep this week, but last night, um, it was pouring rain, and I woke up, and I couldn't fall back asleep right away, and I think part of it is that my mind is is racing with everything going on with with. RFF, and then also um, with my other job, I'm I'm a federal employee, and we're still furloughed, and it's just very distressing. So I don't want to get into it in the podcast, but um, I think that's what was going on. Well, I think that's a factor too in our lives. We we always realize we notice when in our training and our running. I don't know about you, but I feel like both of us have have recognized this over the years when we've got other things going on in our lives that are stressful. Maybe it's something going on with our family, or something going on with work, or just life in general, something in the news that's stressful, that it affects us in many ways, in our health and our sleep. So it's all tied together. And we always tell our runners this, that we don't run in isolation. We, you know, What else is going on? You have something else going A lot of times when runners come to us and they're struggling with their running, we say, well, what what's going on? Is something going on at work? Are you stressed at work? Are you uh, something going on with your family? And usually can hit the nail on the head. We can find something that's not running related, but that's playing into their health and their stress and sleep. And stress is a big one, right? Don't we see that a lot with our runners? There's stress, high levels of stress. 
things start to deteriorate. Absolutely. So I try to practice what I preach. And if I had a runner who told me the story that I just shared where I woke up, I would have said to that runner, you know what? I would rather that you sleep an extra hour and run later or skip your run that day than to try and push your body to wake up at the normal time, knowing that you lost a good solid. In my case, I, I probably lost a half hour of sleep, but it felt longer. We also lose like good quality sleep. Exactly. Like high, you know, deep REM. So what I did this morning was, um, I was fortunate in that I'm teleworking, I was teleworking today. And so I didn't have to wake up as early to get on the train to get to work. And I I used that extra hour to my advantage and I feel fine. And I feel like that was a great way to be more flexible. And that's something that I think everybody, especially, um, us, type A runners and all of, all of the runners we coach, not all of them, I don't mean to generalize, but a lot of runners happen to be type A, is to recognize that we do have flexibility and, and when we train, how we train, and our schedule is a guideline, not a mandate. And certainly nobody forces me to run when I choose to run. I just like doing it early to, to make sure I get it out of the way when other disruptions could prevent me from running later in the day. But this morning, I knew that wouldn't be the case, and it worked out really well. So I uh, did my eight miles later in the morning, and it was great. That was smart. Now, I know this race this weekend isn't a goal race, or it's mm-hmm. more sort of fun for you on your on your girls' weekend, but what have you done differently this week other than trying to get a little bit more sleep? Uh, you talked about your running, and I know you didn't do a particularly long run this week. What have you done this week to get ready for to, – to still even if you're not – targeting a, a PR or, you know, really racing this hard out, you still have to get ready for it. It's still a half marathon. It's still a yeah. long, long race. So what have you been doing this week? Uh, I've been making sure that I'm, I always try to be mindful of my hydration and nutrition, but I'm really trying to just make sure that I'm getting all of the right nutrients at the right time and, and just taking in more water and electrolytes. I know you, you're not a huge fan of the taste, but I love noon. It's, it's one of my favorite drinks. So I keep a big bottle of noon next to me, um, while I'm working or I take it with me in the car while I'm driving. And then the other thing that I've been doing this week is I dial back my miles just a little bit. I'm in the middle of training as you are for Boston, but uh, I use this week to dial back. So I ran last weekend, and we'll talk about this in a minute, my long run of 18. And then um, since Monday this week, I've been running probably about a mile or two less per run than what I would usually do on this typical week. And my speed workout on Tuesday, while it was it had speed in it. It wasn't as lengthy as a typical speed workout. And today I did just a couple of um, three by five minute hard um, intervals just to kind of get my legs going for this weekend. You but keep your legs sharp. Yes. So you don't get to the start line feeling sluggish. Correct. Yeah, that makes sense. Sounds good. Did you hear what happened with Aaron Anderson? I did. I saw. It goes towards thorough race prep and having lots of lists and checking them off. Even with that, you can forget something critical. Yes. So Aaron's a a terrific runner in our area. He, I believe he has an Olympic trial qualifier or he's close. Yeah, he's super fast. He's running the Miami marathon this weekend and he put out a call on social media early this morning as he was flying out to Miami from DC to say, I forgot my Garmin charger. Oh no, and fortunately, I am coming to the rescue. His dad dropped off the charger at my house, and so lucky I'm, you were going later yes. than him. And I'm, that's something that's not most things we say you can buy. If you, the, the two things I think that are critical to remember 
are your running shoes because you really don't want to have to, even if you buy the same model, you don't have to buy a new pair, but your running shoes and your ID for picking up your, your packet. But that's another one we should add to our list of really things you shouldn't forget because they're very difficult. You can't really buy a charger mm-hmm. for a watch, just the charger. You need to buy the whole, the watch and the charger. You might be able to find somebody who has the same watch and ask to borrow it, but that's, that's another thing that you really don't want to forget. True. Although I wonder if, if that happened to me, especially for, I mean, it's not my goal race. I would just run, run without a watch. Yeah, yeah. Run naked. I don't know if you remember last <laughs> two summers ago, my Garmin broke while we were at the beach and I, we came home straight from the beach and I had uh, just a small local 5k and I was in a little bit of a panic. Am I going to run without my watch? Garmin was great. They were actually sending me a replacement and the gentleman on the phone that was helping me realized I had a race and said, maybe I'll, I'll try to overnight it to you, but it didn't, it wasn't going to come in time. And I decided to run without it. And it was just a 5k and it was a short distance. So pacing isn't as critical, but I ran it within two seconds of my time from the year before. So it just goes to show you it's yeah, I sometimes love good that. to tune back into your to your effort. But you're right; that's a good a, a good option. It's just to run without the watch. But I think for a marathon or half marathon, you might want to be able to keep tuned into, especially at the beginning, to make sure you're not going out too fast. So you're very kind to rescue Aaron. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was my pleasure. I love doing nice things for people. It makes me feel good, especially if he qualifies for the Olympic trials. <laughs> I'll have a little hand in it. Yeah. So yeah, there I'm you go. Such a watch charger. So tell me, you did your long run this week today. How did that go? Soggy. So I actually was dreading it last night. This week, I think I talked to you on Tuesday. I was saying I didn't know I was going to be able to get in my long run on Thursday because the forecast all week has been for, uh, I think they were calling it rain heavy at times and strong winds, which sounds kind of like Boston last year. And I was sort of dreading it. I kept checking the weather last night to see if there'd be maybe a window this morning that I could go out. And it was saying 100% chance of rain all morning and I thought let me just wake up and see what it's like and decide so I got up this morning my kids left for school and it was 58 degrees and at the time it was drizzling and I said you know what let me go out and get in as much as I can and see what I can get in so I went out and it was actually very pleasant it wasn't too bad at all and I kept thinking, where are, this, where are they talking about heavy at times and strong gusty winds? And about mile 10, I, I found out what, where, uh, where those were. And I told you earlier that if I had not been at mile 10 or 11, if I had been at mile two or three, I may have turned around and come home. But it totally reminded me of Boston. It was just about 20 degrees warmer. So totally reminded me of Boston. And I just kept thinking, I've done this before. I can do it again. I can finish this, get home. And I finished it. And I felt great when I was done because I knocked it out. I was soaking wet. The last four miles were the torrential pouring rains and the heavy winds. So uh, I walked in the door, took off all the clothes, put them in the wash and went and got in a warm shower. So, So it's done. It's all done. I'm going to respectfully disagree with you on one point. I believe that even if this had started happening at mile two, I think you would have kept going. I don't know. I had it, The problem was I had in my mind this morning that if I needed to make this a cutback week because of the weather, <laughs> I, I really had given myself permission already. I okay. said, eh, you know, I did a good long mm-hmm. run last week and I had given myself permission mm-hmm. in my head to make this a cutback week. I don't know. But I was glad I was 10 miles into it and still had to get four miles home. And I thought, well, if I got to get four miles home, I might as well get the extra two miles in. That's great. I'm proud of you. Um, so I did not do my long run on a Thursday as usual because 
of what we just talked about. So I did mine last Saturday, which was my first Saturday long run or weekend long run of 2019. It's amazing. Um, which it's, is crazy. <laughs> I've liked, though, I don't know about you, think I've liked doing my Thursday long runs because I feel like it's out of the way before the weekend comes. The weekend comes and I've, I've gotten it done so I can sleep in a little, I can relax, no pressure. I don't know how you feel about doing Thursday long runs. I have mixed feelings. I, I love it in the morning, but when I am doing carpool Thursday night, I'm feeling yeah. really worn down. So I have mixed feelings, but yes, I to your point, I do enjoy not having it on the weekend sometimes. But How did last- your long run go last weekend? You, you did something that was we do often trying to piece together sometimes. What did you do last weekend? Yeah, it was actually great. So I made sort of a plan. I wanted to run 18. So I met up with Felix and Jen Schwartz and Lisa White in King Farm. And we ran um, around the Millennium Trail and did about 11. Then I left them, quickly jumped in my car, um, had some, a little, had my nutrition in my car where I was waiting. I probably should have taken it well before my 11, but it was more convenient that way. And then I drove for five minutes to Crown, Gaithersburg, where the Lululemon store is because we were doing a group run from there. I met you in front of the store, jumped out of my car, and together we ran uh, about four miles to map out the route and make sure that the people coming for the run at nine o'clock would not slip. And we were pleased to note that the route was completely with the exception of one little spot, completely clear of ice, and there was no black ice. And then we went back to the store, and we were there just in time to pick up the group. And together, we all ran the last uh, five five or six miles of my run, and I managed to get an 18. But it was great. We had a great turnout last week. We had a week. great turnout. It was so fun, and every runners of different levels of experience and paces, so it was a great... And we actually had... Good, decent weather, despite the fact we had had some snow before, and then it, the weather turned not so great after. We got that window in, so so it was great. And and I like what you did, and I like that you weren't you. You're pretty flexible in your long runs, where if you wasn't all at one chunk at one pace with in one, it still counts. And we tell our runners that a lot. If you don't have time to get it all in right at that one time, you can split it up if you have to take a break and continue finish the run later in the day. It's not ideal, but you did it all in the morning, but pieced it together. And that was good multitasking, I thought. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and you're right. I did a lot of different paces. If you look at my Garmin splits, I haven't yet, but I'm sure they have a lot of variety. But I was never going too fast, and, and really, you can never run too slow. Right, it's a time on your feet. You it's got great. in lots of time on your feet, and we had great time with everybody. So, And how are you feeling generally? I know we, we always... Uh, start to keep a close eye, look out for any possible injuries now and acting early on, on injuries. How, how have you been feeling? Everything feel okay? I don't even want to say it out loud. I feel, wouldn't. yeah, I feel, um, I feel good. And um, I'm really excited because in this week's podcast, we are interviewing Dr. Lee Firestone and, and we're going to touch on injuries and, and injury prevention. And there's just one thing about injury that I feel like I've learned over the years that I think is really important, and that is if you are listening to this podcast and you find yourself in a place where you are maybe injured or you're just coming off of an injury, an injury is part of the circle of life of running and happens to everyone, I, I think it's really important to have a mindset where you, while recognizing that it sucks, 
it's also an opportunity to try something else. Um, we are not defined by the fact that we are runners. We're defined by the people we are and we happen to run. And injury presents opportunities to do things with your time that maybe you wouldn't have had time to do because you're training more. And I know that's hard to do sometimes, but I, I think it, if, if someone out there is listening and feeling down about their current state, look around and, and maybe find an activity or a, or pursue a passion you haven't pursued in a long time with the time that you would ordinarily use to run. Or spend time with people that you we don't yeah, get to spend. That's I, I do that often after a marathon training cycle and mileage drops back down. What I know when you were injured several years ago, what I really liked about your perspective, you always said, I'm going to get a PR in recovery. And you, just like you tackle your training and your focus on your training and everything else in your life, you put that focus on recovery and you became the best recoverer that you could. And anytime I meet people who are injured or talk to people who are injured, I relate that to them because I think that's really important because that's a critical part. Just like in training, the rest days are a critical part of our training and something you really have to ace those too. You can check those off your training calendar. Checked, I rested today. Super important. Same thing with recovery. You've got to really focus on it and aim to get that PR in recovery. So I'm excited to talk to Lee, Dr. Firestone, who's also a running buddy of ours and a very accomplished runner, one of our Boston buddies. And I'm excited to talk to him because I think he's also got a very good perspective on catching injury early, on treating injury, and what to do to work through injury to keep you moving forward. Absolutely. And next week... um after our podcast, just a couple of days after, we are hosting the book club we had mentioned last week. And for anyone who's thinking about it, the registration is still open. We are trying to keep it, we're, we're limiting it a little bit only because of space, but also because we want to have meaningful discussion. It's one session. It's local in the Maryland area. And we will be um, discussing the book Diet Cults with registered dietitian, um, Rachel Englehart. Rachel Englehart. And she's also a therapist, which I think is fascinating that she has both uh, qualifications. Um, yeah, she had mentioned it, she found it mm -hmm. helpful and necessary to be able to help her clients to understand yeah. what challenges they face uh, in, and hurdles that they face to their to their uh, nutrition their tr nutrition challenges. And she got her counseling degree, which I thought would be helpful for us as well so that we could help our runners even more. So, so excited to have her. She's, we've just met her and excited to discuss the book and look forward to seeing a lot of our runners that are going to be joining us. So there's still time to sign up, even if you don't finish the book or even if you don't read the book and you still want to come get some information on nutrition that supports your life and your training, I think it's going to be a really great discussion. And dispelling the diet myths. There's so much information out there. So that is next Sunday, February 3rd. Yeah. But first we're going to talk to, to Lee Firestone. Yes. So before we get to Lee, we have a favor to ask those who are listening. And that is this podcast could not happen without people listening. And we are kind of shocked that we have almost 500 downloads. So thank you. We are really um, surprised and grateful and thanks for listening. And if you have time, 
if you wouldn't mind reviewing the podcast on iTunes, that would mean the world to us because that allows people who might not know about it to find us. Um, the more reviews, apparently, the more we show up in searches on iTunes. And if we can help more marathoners, potential Boston marathoners, or people who are heading out and doing spring marathons to try and qualify those who already have, whatever they are, if we can reach more people, that would be awesome because that's what we love to do is to help people be the best they can be. And thank you to everyone who has submitted reviews. Very, very humbling and we appreciate it. And it's neat to see who's listening and all the different types of people. And we've gotten a lot of reviews and responses and feedback that even if they're not training for Boston, that the information we've had and the speakers we've had, our, our guests that we've had, are have been very helpful. Yeah, good stuff. So we're going to take it, t- turn it over to Lee and uh, have a great week. You too. Bye. Good luck in Florida. Thank you. Dr. Lee Firestone is a board-certified podiatrist in the Washington, D.C. area. He has been practicing for 25 years and has been named by Washingtonian Magazine as well as Run Washington as a top sports medicine doctor in the D.C. area. Not only is Dr. Firestone a terrific doctor, but he also is a great runner. Dr. Firestone has finished 16 marathons, including five Boston marathons, and has a PR of 256. He is a member of the Montgomery County Roadrunners Club racing team and is very active in the running community. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. First of all, tell us, when did you start running? So I started running first in high school. I ran cross country, I ran indoor and outdoor track. Um, ran some intramurals in college, and uh, then career starts, and uh, took a little hiatus for about 15 years. And what was your experience like when you were younger? Were you one of the faster runners, or why did you run when you were younger, and what was that like? Well, I I, I remember taking the, uh, uh, I think it was the presidential fitness test when I was in elementary school, and I figured out at that age to pace myself and uh, there were some runners who went out there and ran too fast and they petered out at the end and I learned quickly that it was important to learn how to pace yourself and with that um, I've always had that little running bug in me. Um, I wasn't one of the fastest runners in high school um, but I really loved it and um, I made some really great friends in the process. And you had told us you took a, you know, a hiatus about 15 years between your high school, college running, and when you started up again in about 2007. What made you start, decide to start running again? It's a good question. I had a lot of health issues prior to that, and one of them was something called sarcoidosis, which is a lung condition that affects lung capacity. And I went into my pulmonologist, and uh, they weren't too impressed with my lung volumes, and I said, I'm going to show him. And I started running with my neighbors as a bet during, right after New Year's for the new year. And uh, six months later, went back and my lung values improved significantly. And uh, that was just by accident that I really became a little addicted to running again. It was more to prove something to the pulmonologist. Um, Were you nervous about running knowing that you had this condition? Or did you know medically that running wouldn't worsen this diagnosis? I wasn't worried about it. Um, It's not life-threatening for most people. Um, But I knew at the same time um, that if there was something I could do uh, at the time to improve my health, I should. And I think a lot of us go through this little midlife crisis where we realize we're not exercising enough. And I was one of those people. So it gave me, it it, it killed two birds with one stone. 
So how old were you when you started running again based on that diagnosis and bet? Um, I want to say I was about 41 at the time. Okay. And how long did it take before you decided to conquer the marathon distance? Well, um, everything is peer pressure in life. And I ran into some people through a program called Speed Development. And I thought at the time I was just going, I was just going, this is through Montgomery, Road, Montgomery County Roadrunners. I thought at the time that I was just going to run some smaller races, 10 kilometers or less. But they kind of did some arm twisting and they said, Lee, you can do this. You can run with the Experience Marathon program. And if anybody knows anything about the Experience Marathon program, you're supposed to have some experience running marathons. <laughs> Mike Broderick was the coach at the time, and Mike um, uh, saw my numbers from running my smaller races and thought that I should be grandfathered in because of that. And um, So, wait, let's wrong. go back for a second. So, what, so you started running again in 2007. Right. Then you signed up for a speed, intense speed development program after you started casually running. Right. And then what was your 10K time? Do you remember after finishing that program, after casually running, and then doing one cycle of that? I want to say it was somewhere around a 50-minute 10K. Okay. Based on that, you decided to run a marathon. Based on that, not necessarily. I ran that 10K uh, right before starting speed development. And okay. everybody who was training with me at the time before speed development petered out. And I needed some running partners. And uh, I heard about this great group called Montgomery County Rudder Rudders and didn't know a soul. And I made some great friends by joining speed development. And from there, I started improving my speed times. Got it. So what was your 10K time after you did... A cycle of training, oh, a group boy. training. It's been so long, I honestly don't remember. But I know I bettered that time by a good six, seven minutes. Okay. And it was fast enough that Coach Broderick said to you, you, you have a lot of potential exactly. at the longer distances. Exactly. And then you went on. So what was your first marathon? My first marathon was Marine Corps Marathon. Um, and um, I made a lot of mistakes, and I learned a lot from that first marathon. What were some of the mistakes and what you learned? I went out too fast. And I didn't start drinking water soon enough. I didn't grab my first cup of water until I was around mile six. Mm. And I probably should have started every two miles or every mile. Um, and uh, I thought I could hold off, but quickly learned that I become dehydrated very quickly. And I found that at the wall at mile 20. Okay. And so um, do you remember your time in your first marathon? I remember it being somewhere around three hours and 40 minutes. Okay. So not Boston, didn't qualify for Boston. Didn't qualify, no. And when did you start, I mean, some of your marathon times are insanely fast. When did you break through that barrier and realize what you needed to do nutritionally and strategy-wise and achieve that new time of, what, 256? Yeah. So the following year, I, I signed up for Experience Marathon program again. And I decided to reconquer uh, the Marine Corps Marathon. And I want to say I brought my time down to about a 2.13-ish. And uh, I, 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 was, I refined my skills. I wasn't dehydrated this time. Three, 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 I mean, sorry, 3.13, yeah. three, three, <laughs> like, wow. not 2.13. Whoa. Yeah, no, no, no. And no. I went We're to not the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, anyway, I, 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 but I still thought I had some refining to do. And I signed up for Philadelphia uh, the following year. And uh, that's when I broke three hours the first time. Amazing. So you really had a lot of natural ability in that after a cycle of about three marathons, you were able to hone in on your nutrition, your strategy, and break three hours. Right. Amazing. What year? What was your first Boston? You remember what year it was? Um, 
gosh, I want to say it was probably around 2009, okay. maybe 2010, 2010, say. So, so since this is a Boston podcast, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. I want, we want to go back to podiatry, but we'll right. stick with running for a few minutes. Talk to us. You run six Bostons and right. you, you really are, you seem very, you're someone who's pretty scientific and you, you're analytical. So talk to us and tell our listeners who are training for Boston. Um, right now we're in week four of training. What would you advise runners training for Boston and any other spring races to do right now in their training um, from your perspective? Okay. Well, I just want to correct things. I, I ran actually five Boston marathons. Oh, but, okay. But uh, I think the important thing is to have patience and think about um, creating a good base and good strength um, early on. You do not want to injure yourself. This is a cold time of the year. Um, it's easy to become lazy and not go out for the run on a, on a cold day. Have uh, alternative options. It could be a treadmill. Um, you may want to even bike and cross train. But, but let me let me just read. You're not saying it's lazy to run inside. You're saying lazy not run. Lazy not to run. Right. On you need to get stay in bed in the yeah. morning when it's right. cold yeah. and just have an excuse not yep. to get your work on these cold on these cold dark mornings. It's easy not to get yourself yes. out of bed and do this. Another thing that motivates you at this point, I think you should find a running group to run with, especially for your long runs on the weekend, to keep you motivated and and really put in your miles. Uh, but it's important to to to, to um, start off slowly. You do not want to train too hard, too fast, and hurt yourself too easy in the season. I always remember you telling me, and I I really keep this in mind, and we share this with our runners a lot. The importance of when you're running in the cold, you when you're doing speed work, you have to do those few miles before you start your speed work extra extra easy. And I also remember you telling me many years ago. Um, it's not always great to do these track workouts in the freezing cold at night. You were talking about how a lot of people do evening track workouts, and we had a conversation. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you right. may remember this, where you were saying how it's it's not great sometimes, especially in the winter. You're sitting at your desk all day. You're sort of immobile, and then you get up, you go, and then you, boom, you start doing speed work at night. So can you talk a little bit about the warm-up and sort of what, what you mean by that? Sure. Well, when we're sitting at a desk all day at work, I always feel that our hip flexors are becoming tight, our glutes are becoming weak, um, our Achilles tendon, uh, calf muscles are becoming tight, um, and we're doing this all day, and we're, we're going from, um, from a very, uh, 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 just a very, very business-like mode uh, to an athlete mode. We're putting on a different hat. In the cooler weather, we're tight, and we're, we're, we've got to make sure we warm ourselves up. So it's really important, I think, to get to the track early. Um, don't get there late. Make sure you can get your warm-up in. I see too many people who get caught up in traffic, and uh, they, they miss their running crowd, and they don't do their one- or two-mile warm-up on a cold night, and that is a great way to hurt yourself. And then similarly in the morning, too, you roll out of bed. You want to start your speed workout right away. Take extra time in the morning for those morning runners to similarly get to the track or get on your treadmill early enough that you have time to very slowly warm up or, and or do the, your drills right. so that you're primed. Yeah, exactly. My, my morning run from my house is usually starts with an uphill, which mm -hmm. isn't the best. I live at the uh, bottom of a little valley. So I make sure when I'm starting, I start slow. I, don't, I try not to get my, my training pace, uh, get, get into my training mile pace. I try to do this slowly, and I will sometimes go after about maybe a mile or so. I'll I'll stretch out a little bit before I keep going. 
That's really smart. Do you do the same thing, Lisa? Like I do. You... Oh, yeah. And I think yeah. naturally my first probably two miles are are just slower naturally. And mm-hmm. I know a couple of our runners have said to us, mm-hmm. oh, gosh, those first few miles were so hard. And then I got into my groove. And I always tell them that's exactly yeah. how I feel. So that's I just follow what my body feels like. But right. especially in the cold, I usually don't feel my feet or my fingers until yeah. mile about mile three. So I just listen to my body. And once I feel like... I'm into that groove, but it, it's definitely hard. So, Lee, I would wonder, I have a question too. I recall you telling me once, and this always sticks in my head, that the injuries that you saw in runners or in yourself and uh, our fellow runners often happen when mileage gets over about 75 miles per week. And I don't know if that's, that's right. still something that you believe, and I've always had that in my head. And I'm curious to know how you think runners who are training for Boston or for other marathons who are training hard, who may be up in higher mileage, they have some speed work, they have some tempo work. How can you train hard and stay healthy? That's a good question. Um, I, I think the most important thing is to really read your body. I think as we become more and more experienced, we feel certain aches and pains we know shouldn't be there. It's okay to take a day off or two days off and let yourself recover and find other ways to cross train so you don't go insane. That could be anything from swimming to biking to pool running just something to let the body heal. Um, I think it's important. Um, I'm, I'm not a dietitian, I'm a podiatrist, but I think diet is really important. Uh, I think after a run within 45 minutes, we should all be getting some protein to build up those muscles. Um, I think a lot of people love to ice things down. There's a lot of controversy about ice and warmth, but I feel if you're trying to rebuild muscle after you've beat yourself up after doing these miles, your, your muscles are yearning for blood flow. They're yearning for protein. They're learning for building blocks to build back what you've just beat up. I don't know why we ice. Ice deprives things of blood flow as they're trying to heal. Normal physiology is to let that blood flow to that muscle. So I think the best thing you could do is feed those muscles by, by getting protein. It could be a Greek yogurt. It could be a chocolate milk. It could be, it could be a hard-boiled egg. I don't care what it is. But try to do that within 45 minutes of running. And a warm shower maybe to get blood flow. Yeah. Is that, yeah, that's as opposed to an ice bath, which actually warm right. shower sounds much better. Mm-hmm. But I like what you said too about cross-training because I think both Julie and I have found that that supplementing our running with cross-training instead of more miles has helped both of us stay healthy and also work other muscles, give our bodies a break from the running, but still develop the cardiovascular Absolutely. system. So I, I like that you and, talk and, about cross-training. And doing some core. I, I, uh, our good friend Noam once pulled me into the center of the, um, uh, the track after a, a work up, workout, and he said, we are going to do core. We're going to do some planks. We're going to do side planks. We're going to do um, some burpees. We are going to get you stronger. And I really never thought about core and the importance of this, but Dome is right, and it is a really important part of training uh, is is doing that core, especially if you could putting putting these longer miles, especially if you're the person sitting at a desk all day with tight muscles and weak muscles. Yeah, Absolutely. That's, that's, I'm say, that's a part that we easily forget or don't want to do mm-hmm. because it's boring. I just came from my kids' cycle team practice, and they do an hour on the bikes, and then they get off and they do a core, a whole core routine. Right. And I've started doing it with them because it forces me. I help with the group, and tonight I actually had to coach them, so I had to do it with them, and it's forcing me to get that in. And I think that's really helpful if you have a way that kind of forces you to get it in, like a friend who pulls you in the middle of the track. Right. Yeah. Well, right. we always tell our runners, um, we, we give all of our runners core exercises, and we completely agree with you and Noam and anyone else who goes in the center of the track. Right. 
but we like to call them um, exercise snacks because you don't have to spend 45 minutes all at once or even 15. If you have five, 10 minutes um, a few times a day, take those five or 10 minutes and do your core work. Right. Those little things really add up. It can make a huge difference. So what are some of your favorite core exercises? Planks you mentioned, anything that you do um, on your own specifically that you like? Well, my daughter, Julia, would, would give me a hard time here because she's the, she's the <laughs> core queen in our house. Uh, but no, planks are very, very good. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, having a standing desk at work helps uh, where you can do some um, single leg heel raises. You can do some core just by standing. Yep. Um, I, I'm always doing balance exercises on one leg and doing single leg squats. Mm -hmm. um, that's my core while I'm still at work, so I'm not having tight hip flexors and weak mm -hmm. glutes. That's great. It's really important. Um, so we kind of touched on this, but we want to know... How do we keep people out of your office? In other words, what mistakes do you see most runners make in their training? I, I think if they have a mild injury, they're, they're, they're nervous about stopping for any period of time that they're gonna lose some ground and they continue to run through the injury. Um, the problem there is you make the injury worse. The problem there is you sometimes compensate and develop secondary and tertiary injuries. So I think it's important to back off a little bit, reassess. I tell people it's good sometimes to take two, three days off. And if the symptoms are not improving, give someone a holler. And, and it's really important to get, a, get the diagnosis. Um, but don't keep running through the injury, of course. I think sometimes, to your point, though, especially with newer runners or runners that are in that point in, in their training or in their sort of running life where they are on that sort of, um, for lack of a better word, treadmill where they're getting better and better and there's this momentum. Sometimes they don't exactly know that they're injured. They don't know what it feels like. So do you have any words or descriptive words that you could describe for um, foot and ankle injuries? Um, what would make someone you think stop for a few days versus run through it? That's a good question. Um, well, first, if you see any swelling, mm -hmm. that's a sign that there's something there. If something starts immediately out of nowhere, I think of that as something that could be a small tear or could be a break. If something is a gradual onset, it's probably not as serious as something that comes on suddenly. If you can take your finger and point to an injury and put your finger on that injury, uh, and this is something that Rachel Miller has taught me, our physical uh, therapist, our physical therapist. <laughs> uh, but pointing to that injury with one finger usually tells me that this could be a small tear or possibly a break. Uh, something that's a little more diffuse that comes on slowly is usually less serious, but should still be investigated. And that doesn't mean Googling, right? Right. And there's a lot of misinformation <laughs> on the internet. Uh, people come to me all the time with a certain diagnosis, and uh, I have to reprogram their brain to think differently. But okay. yeah. Yeah, so we talked about some of the things that we shouldn't, or what we should look for in terms of injury. What do you think are some maybe little secrets or little bits that add up to having a successful Boston Marathon or marathon in general? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, there are a lot of points to being successful. It's, uh, again, it's understanding your body. It's understanding diet, understanding how your body behaves during certain weather conditions. We've had many winters that have been ridiculously cold and to be snapped with a really hot Boston. And we've had just the opposite with a warmer winter with a very cold Boston. So you have to understand how to run in certain conditions. 
We know that Boston has its famous four hills in Newton, and uh, you want to make sure you're preparing for those hills. Luckily, in the Washington area, we have a lot of hills to choose from, uh, but it's really important to uh, get your hill workouts in there so that you can pass people by on these hills and not be passed. There's a lot of psychology, uh, psychology to being passed or passing some, someone. Um, another important thing that has always been good for me with marathons is understanding how to use goo. And I'm one of these people who's how always... How to use nutrition. Yeah. <laughs> I've always deprived myself of goo during runs. So that's um, your preferred nutrition is goo. You mean just, yeah, goo. nutrition okay. in general. So nutrition in general. That's my yeah. nutrition during okay. a long run. But um, I have often taken goo out of the equation mm -hmm. um, and learned how to train without goo. So that on the day of the marathon, my body is like, what is this? This is candy. Um, mm. It's like goo on steroids. And... Uh, it's gotten me a lot further, and I don't always follow all the rules about having a go every 45 minutes. I'll usually do that every 35 minutes. Okay. We um, just had a dietitian, Amy Goldsmith, you know Amy, yeah. and she was on last week, and she really emphasized the importance of training your stomach. So for someone who's experienced like you, you already know that your stomach not only can tolerate goo, which is your preferred nutrition, right. but also that... Um, goo works for you. Correct. So you have the confidence in knowing, but for a, a less seasoned runner, what you just described where you don't have any nutrition and then you surprise your body and do it on race day, probably not the best idea. Probably not. Okay. It's, it's good to understand what things work with your stomach. Uh, everything from uh, the consistency to mm -hmm. whether it gives you a stomach ache uh, or makes you feel nauseous or gives you the proper energy. But it's also good to pick out the right flavor. Some flavors will just make you gag during a race totally. if you don't pick the right one. And so. you have to know it, like mile right. twenty versus mile yeah. like, what you can tolerate at mile four and at mile twenty. You're like, I cannot. Like I used to like chocolate goo, oh, right. and by so the time gross. I got to yeah. mile twenty, it was like, like I don't want any yeah. chocolate. So a little variety. Yes, helps you do have to know what what, yeah. what you like. I want to go back really quickly. You had mentioned as one of the little things to practice hills. So there's really a happy medium, though, because as a podiatrist, you probably see a lot of overuse injuries from running hills too much. Um, sure. So what when you talk about running the hills, what do you think is sort of the best happy medium? Because I know, you know, hill sprints and hill repeats are really um, an important part of training. But I would guess you see some your fair share of Achilles injuries and things like that as a result of that. So, I actually still remember when you had your Achilles injury, you were telling yeah. me that you thought it was from running the hills in Deep yeah. Creek. So, yeah, that's a good question of how do you balance that training and preparing with, with overdoing it on the hills. Sure, sure. Well, of course, when you start these hills, you don't want to start with your speed work on the hills. You want to make sure you're warming up mm -hmm. on the hills and, and conditioning your tight muscles to this, to this new strain. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, if you're somebody who has a tight Achilles, make sure that you do some good dynamic, dynamic stretching before the run. Dynamic is much more important than static stretching mm -hmm. because you're, you're teaching the, the muscle its purpose uh, in function. And I think that's a much better way to keep those muscles healthy. It's part of uh, some of the rehab that we use when we send people to physical therapy as well. But no, if you, if you have a little bit of pain in your Achilles or you have some pain in your quads, uh, maybe you should skip the speed workout on the hill and, and, and pick one or two people and say, hey, how would you like to do the speed work on flatter ground? Play smart. Don't feel peer pressure that you have to do the hill workout if you're not feeling ready for it. Great point. And we, so you talked a little bit about not ignoring pain and, and 
taking action earlier rather than later. Right. When or why should a runner come in to see you? At what point should somebody come in to see you and have, have whatever is nagging them checked? Well, again, if, if the pain is lasting more than three days, if you see swelling, if there is point tenderness, I think it's important to get the diagnosis. You don't want to be deep into a season um, and pushing yourself through this injury only to fail weeks before your marathon. So it's important to, many, many things are reversible if, if you figure out what it is, what buttons you need to push to make sure that it becomes healthy. That's a good, and good point. What if, you're a podiatrist and um, sometimes people don't really know exactly what a podiatrist can do. So can yeah. you explain what distinguishes you from other medical professionals when a runner feels an injury in their foot or ankle? Why would I go to you versus an orthopedist? Well, a podiatrist uh, has training in multiple areas. We're, we're, we're the dermatologist, the sports medicine doctor, the uh, rheumatologist, the um, orthopedist of the foot mm-hmm. and ankle. Um, our training starts uh, with two years of uh, academic medicine, and then the next two years of school are didactic. We're, we're spending time uh, working hands-on with people in the clinics. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we go through two to three years of residency program, immersing ourselves in foot and ankle. Um, uh, I am a little unique where I grew up with a father who's a shoe salesman. So really? I grew up around yeah. feet. <laughs> um, and I also grew up um, very mechanical, building bicycles as a kid. And um, I, I quickly learned that it's not just the skills you learn in school, but learning how to apply them. Um, you can have the best knowledge in the world, but if you don't have the hands and the hand-eye coordination, um, it's, it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to help people and be everything you can be. Um, it's also important to be a good teacher and spend time with people and have compassion. And um, uh, I can tell you that some of the life events that I've had have made me a more compassionate person with my own health issues and my family's health issues. Um, when you have injuries, um, when you've been down this road and you've been through the psychology that many runners have, um, I, I think you understand the psyche. You understand why runners are anal, why runners... Um, <laughs> don't, why they don't want to stop why running. Why they don't want to stop. <laughs> right? And my goal is to keep people running mm-hmm. through an injury if I can and, uh, and, and, and give them other options. I can attest to your compassion and the way you treat patients because I was a frequent patient in your office um, in 2015. I don't know if you remember, I came to you in December of 2014. I said I had a little bit of pain in the back of my foot and, and you quickly diagnosed it as sort of an inflammation of my Achilles. You didn't say it was a tear. You were kind of looking at it more like it was something more general and you gave me a lot of great suggestions, which I followed and it never got better. And I was in the middle of training for Boston and you did everything you could to keep me running, but we, we had to shut it down and you worked with me so compassionately. I was Definitely, I was so frustrated and upset because I had no idea how I did it. And you used a lot of different modalities to help me, to help heal me. And my Achilles is, knock on wood, is is 100%. And I think that's nothing shy of a miracle because I believe I had two or three tears in it. And 
can you talk about what your modalities are in your practice? Because in addition to your compassion, and I think for anyone that lives in the D.C. area, we are so lucky to have a doctor like Lee. But if you don't live in the D.C. area and you're listening to this, these are traits that one should look for in any medical practitioner or physical therapist. But tell us a little bit about the modalities that you use that are unique to your practice. Okay. Well, I think it's really, really important to be a good diagnostician. Like you said before, people will Google things and get a diagnosis. And when people when people think they have heel pain, they immediately think they have plantar fasciitis. But there are a lot of people who have something like you, Julie, which is was insertional Achilles tendinosis which is a kind of a cousin of tendonitis, but I'll get to, into that in a minute. But it's important to be a good diagnostician and give people the right track to follow to see improvement. And it's also important not just to have short-term goals to get people better, but long-term goals to get people better. Many of the injuries we see um, are, are due to degeneration. It could be degeneration of a tendon, degeneration of a ligament, degeneration of a joint but it's important to make the diagnosis. You asked me what modalities I use, one of them is ultrasound. So where I think we lack a little in medicine, we love to take x-rays and we have digital x-rays in our office to make a diagnosis, but many of the, many of the injuries that we see in our runners are soft tissue injuries. And you make those soft tissue injuries with something like ultrasound or MRIs. MRIs are expensive, it's one of the reasons that there is high cost in healthcare. And MRIs uh, take a little bit of work uh, to order and um, to get the results. An ultrasound can be—we can give us—it can give us the diagnosis on the spot. We can repeat the ultrasound a month later to see if somebody's improving or worsening. And I love to teach. I like to show people their X-rays. I like to show people their ultrasound. I want them to see the injury and understand why I'm doing what I'm doing, and uh, what the injury is. So. It's, you, if you want an education, I will give you an education in the office. You'll also give us pain because explain <laughs> what EPAT is because okay. you used that on me and you gave me pain, but it actually, so, it actually worked. All right. So I think it's important to think out of the box here. Um, in medicine, we're always taught that inflammation is part of healing, but somewhere, this is in school, um, but somewhere in the clinical world, we were taught that inflammation is evil and that you're supposed to fight inflammation with ice anti-inflammatories, steroid injections. But thinking out of the box, maybe inflammation is important. Maybe inflammation is part of healing. Maybe when you have a cold, you're supposed to have a fever. Maybe that's your body's physiologic attempt to knocking out the viral infection. And maybe your body's attempt to heal an injury is to create inflammation. We're supposed to swell after a sprained ankle. So let's talk about why hurting someone makes someone better. <laughs> well, one of the tactics we use in the office is something called ESWT. It's called shockwave therapy. It sounds like voodoo medicine. Is it also called not. EPAT? It's called EPAT, okay. uh, which stands for extracorporeal uh, act, uh, pulse activation therapy. And it basically means we also are... Also stands for hell. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Sounds medieval. Yeah, yeah. We, had, we had to give Julia a lollipop when we were done. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but the whole idea is many of the injuries that we see become chronic and the inflammatory phase of that injury has surpassed. And if we can turn the clock back on time and create an inflammatory response at the site of the injury, the body will pour growth factors into the area. The body will pour more blood into the area, proteins into the area to help you heal that injury. And we trick the body into thinking the injury is new and it's old. It works. Um, I use this on my own Achilles. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I had bilateral Achilles tendonitis 
in the fall of 2017, and I was supposed to run a marathon, and I couldn't do it. I was supposed to run Mohawk on the Hudson, and I wound up running the Army 10-miler instead that year. And I did it because I knew I wouldn't be able to complete a marathon. I was smart enough to know that my injury was going to sideline me. But I had one of the doctors in my office, Dr. Vuewager, use EPAT on both of my Achilles. And within about six, seven weeks, I was pain-free. And that was after about six, seven months of having Achilles tendonitis. Wow. Did that make you have more compassion? Absolutely. <laughs> you, did it hurt I, you too? I felt Julie's pain. I, it, it, it did hurt. I will tell you that I was a little bit of a wimp and I only let him do uh, one of my Achilles. And I, I had the guts the next day to have him touch my other. It hurts. But you know, I knew, nope, I knew a little bit of pain meant that I was going to have some gain on the other end. And I believed in this. I see it in my patients. And uh, it's the way my brain is wired. I am not someone who gives steroid injections when somebody comes in with heel pain. I think it causes damage. It, 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 cortisone injections treat inflammation and most of the plantar fasciitis we see is not inflammation. It's degeneration and micro tearing and you don't treat tears with steroid injections. If it was, I, I use a certain rule in medicine and, and in life and I turn the table around, and if you're my wife, if you're my sister, my parent, would I be doing this to you? And that's the way I, I ground myself with everybody. I love that. So you mentioned plantar, plantar fasciitis, and that is like one of the most common injuries we see. Um, just because I think probably anyone listening to this podcast either has had it or knows someone who's had it, give us some tips on preventing it and treating it. All right, so plantar fasciitis is actually the wrong term. Okay. It, it sounds like an inflammation. Itis means inflammation. It's really plantar fasciosis. So we'll start there. Um, but uh, you won't find much about plantar fasciosis if you Google plantar fasciosis because most people call it plantar fasciitis. But bottom line is there are the two triggers for that are generally a tight Achilles tendon, actually three triggers, tight Achilles tendon, weak core, usually the gluteus medius muscles, and flat feet. So, what first, about tight calves? Uh, at, well, that's the tight Achilles tendon. Okay. Uh, so tight Achilles, tight calves are the same thing, mm -hmm. and weak glutes, um, and then the flatter foot. So first thing, it's important to assess someone biomechanically and look for for any uh, tightness, any weakness, and do a good biomechanical exam. In my heart of hearts, I think most plantar fasciitis comes from a tight Achilles. And I think that's an important part. Even if you don't think you have a tight Achilles, if, you're, if you feel that the pain improves when you wear a pair of shoes with a little bit of a heel, women especially, that's a clue that a tight Achilles is the problem. And if it's tight, you need to stretch. Not everybody needs a custom orthotic. I always tell people as a start, if they have flat feet, buy a pair of over-the-counter orthotics from one of the good running stores and try that first. And if it fails, um, then we start upping the ante and we start thinking about custom. If you're stretching and you're not making any headway, we up the ante and send you to physical therapy. Um, and the same thing goes for the core. If you're not making any strides, we send you to physical therapy. So really, in your opinion, it's biomechanics um, and weaknesses that cause plantar, not necessarily footwear, but footwear can exacerbate it. Footwear can exacerbate it. Um, if you're wearing 
heels during the day and then you put on that lower heeled running shoe, mm-hmm. there's, there's foot, footwear as a problem. So make sure if you're going to be training for a marathon, don't wear three inch stilettos in the office. <laughs> Not smart. Um, <laughs> so I have no football. Right? Right? There you go. Um, but the other thing is shoes. Yeah, it's important to make sure that you don't, you don't put too many miles on your running shoes. I always tell people take a Sharpie, write somewhere inside or outside the shoe when you, when you started wearing them. And most of us have Garmin's or some running watch so we can clock our miles. And just make sure you don't go over 500 miles with those running shoes. Definitely. And what's your opinion about shoes in general? Um, I know you completely agree with us that you should go to a specialty running store to get fitted for shoes. But um, a lot of people, including us, we, we want a good bargain. We'll go, you know, R&J Sports, our local running store, they have a great selection in the back room of Shoes that um, are no longer um, 50% off. Fi- yeah, 50% off. Shoes that are no longer being made in that. Ne- that um, it's not that. It's the, ne- the next, next version. Is next out. version? Yeah, old version. Right. Is it? Do you believe or do you do you subscribe to the viewpoint that shoes that are sitting on shelves after so many years deteriorate? Or do you have an opinion about that? We've kind of heard both. I have to actually interject. I went to R and J to buy my shoes the other day, and I was in the 50% mm-hmm. off room. They have our shoes that we yeah. wear in there. And I said, I think maybe I'll buy two pairs. And I asked them there, I said, but if they sit on my shelf for six months and I don't wear this pair, will they degenerate? They said, that is not true anymore. They said, if you let them sit for 15 or 20 years, maybe, huh. but now the materials that they make should be fine for a year or two years sitting. Oh, that's yeah, good. I just asked that question of okay. RJ yeah. just a few days ago, because that's also, we sort of had that preconceived notion that's that good. if they sit and get brittle and the material, but they said the material nowadays that they use should be good for 15 to 20 years. But that right. still doesn't mean you should buy your shoes at Nordstrom Rack because no. that may no. mean it's a defective. Right. Well, right. The shoes that they sell, I think at some of the discounters tend to be, there's some, there's a, they're a reject for some reason and it could well, be color, but it could be structure. It could be all that. And it could also be a lower quality shoe. Um, I've had some runners who are running in shoes that aren't even running shoes and of other runners who will uh, think that they've got this under control they'll buy an over-the-counter orthotic or put their orthotic in a shoe and they won't realize they're overcorrecting because the shoe they purchased is already a shoe that corrects right. and they're doubling up so I think it's really important to go to a good shoe shop who really know how to do good shoe mm-hmm. footing fitting um, and make sure that the shoe is the right size the right width you might think that you like a certain model of shoe, but you know these shoe companies sometimes change things up, and the people who know what the changes are are the people who work in the shoe stores. So I honestly would go to a reputable shoe store, um, ask for the best people who work there, and even if you have to wait for them, have a good shoe fitting. Okay. So, uh, do you see? Is do you feel like there's one common maybe cause of injury that you see in runners or especially runners who are training for marathons? Is there one mistake you see or one cause of major cause of injury? Hmm, Good question. I mean, I I think one of the biggest things is that runners don't stick with their pace in their pace group. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something called LSD miles, which are your long, slow distance miles. And people think they should go out a little faster than they really should. Listen to your coaches. They know what they're talking about. Um, these are the miles that are teaching your muscles to become to do it to, to be handle the endurance, uh, but you do not want to go out too fast. That's not what that that distance is about. It's about it's about conditioning your muscles for distance, not about speed. That would be my number one thing I would say. We too couldn't fast. agree more with that. And and back to your original comment about the weather being colder. You what you think your long slow distance pace is 
on a perfect 65 degree day may be slower in the winter. You're working a little harder in the cold to run sometimes, especially yeah. in these extreme temperatures. So it's really more about not the pace number per se, but are you able to talk comfortably while running? And, sure. And, and for some people, that may be slower in the winter or maybe faster in the winter and slower in the summer. It depends on how your body reacts to And running a long run fast does not guarantee you're going to have a fast marathon at all. There's no, it's not like no. you're practicing for it. And back to your point too about running with a group, I think we've talked about this before. Sometimes there's a group think mentality where nobody wants to be the slowest in the group. So there's pace creep in groups. So I think that's something you have to be careful about too in groups. It's great to have your group, right. but you also have to keep an eye on each other and make sure you stay honest to that pace. Yeah. It's important not to have the peer pressure in that group. And if you think that somebody's picking up the pace, speak out. Don't, don't, don't be sucked into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. No, 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 no bullying. bullying. No bullying. <laughs> um, so we're going to wrap up with um, our last question. We think this is a good note to end on because you have run Boston a number of times successfully mm-hmm. and you, you're very knowledgeable and you also treat so many runners in our area who are training for or have run Boston. So what is your advice for running Boston? What tips do you have for executing that course? Well, um, I think you want to take away a lot of the uncertainty with running. So I would say one of the most important things, and this is something my friend Dan taught me a long time ago, is... Dan DeFonso, Montgomery County. Get to that bus uh, early and get get to Hopkinton early just so you can have a nice seat. Many times you'll get there, the ground is wet. You don't want to be sitting on ice cold, wet ground. Uh, make sure you have a good spot to sit and you just take some of the anxiety out because I think you you waste a lot of energy with anxiety if you're not at a race on time. So that I would see is a really important thing. Understand where the porta pots are. And I will tell <laughs> there you There are lots of them. They're hard to miss. Many of many of us who have qualified for Boston and are are uh, in some of the first corrals and I will tell you the elite runners have their own set of uh porta pots way up front near the first corral. So a little trick there are porta pots up there, and but I will tell you, it's, it, it, now that's everybody a, knows that's important. I Those elite runners out. are going to be really mad at you. Let the secret out, but no, that You're takes right. away some of the anxiety. And I think starting starting off without some of those little bits of uncertainty really, really help. Understand the weather. Pay attention to the weather that day. Um, understand your body and how it how it how it uh, behaves in certain types of weather. The first. I guess 16 miles or so are downhill, so you want to make sure that uh, you don't get caught in the vortex of going too fast. You're going to be around a lot of people who are your your pace group. Just like with your pace groups when you're training, don't go out too fast. Um, Save it um, and use it for the hills later on in Newton. Um, Have fun. There are going to be a lot of kids in the first few miles handing out orange slices. Give them high fives. Never lose the kid in you, and it gives you energy. It makes the race fun for you and makes the race fun for all the spectators. Have fun. Um, I think that reminds me of one, the race we started together. A couple of things you mentioned remind me that we started together the year with the hot year. Right. It was always a title to the Boston, you know, yeah. Boston Marathon. Ours was the hot year, and we both started a little bit farther back and a little bit slower pace, right. uh, which really helped. Well, first of all, you know your body and you know you're not a great heat runner. So you were cognizant of that. But also I felt that year starting out at an easier pace and a fun, really kind of a fun, we all, everyone let go of their expectations and it was really more of a laid back, having fun, taking in the kids on the sidelines. Um, That was a really, may not been the best weather conditions, but it was a really good Boston because 
kind of, you know, started yeah. out at, an, at a reasonable pace, didn't get sucked in, had fun. So everything you just talked about, knowing your body and how it reacts to the different weather conditions because you never yeah. know what you're going to get. So that's, that was Absolutely. one of my favorite, favorite years. Right. And, if, and, and, I mean, and during the race, I mean, I would tell you to try to run through the water stops, but um, understand your body. It's okay to take two or three waters during a water stop. You don't have to take just one. Um, and there are going to be spectators along the way handing out water if you need the in-between water. As and you get, beer. And beer. <laughs> and electrolytes. But as you get closer to the city, you're going you're gonna to leave the residential areas where people are going to hand out the orange mm-hmm. slices and water. So make sure that you've hydrated properly for the last five miles when you're in that more urban setting. That's a good point. All right. Well, Lee, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. We we learned a lot. Yeah, um, we I learned always, a lot. You've, you've, you've helped us for over, over all of our years of coaching. We often refer to your bits of advice that you've given us, and it's really helped us coach our runners. So thank you. Well, thank you. So our hope this season is that none of our runners end up in your office, but should that happen, mm-hmm. we know that they're in good hands with a compassionate doctor. So thank you, Lee Firestone. Thank you. Thank you, thank you guys. Bye. Bye-bye.